Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It's Tuesday, March 10th, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Does it sound a little different today? Well, it was a sick day, not mine. An enforced sick day. My six-year-old was home. That's okay. We learned lessons. We bonded. And we watched Dumbo. Dumbo! The ninth wonder of the universe! The wild zone flying elephant! <laughs> 1941. This is coming up on its 75th anniversary. Dumbo, 64 minutes. First big moneymaker for Disney. Fascinating movie in a lot of ways. Great lessons. Here with a synopsis is my son. My name is Emmett Pescott. Today I'm going to talk about Dumbo the Elephant. Once upon a time, there was a little, just tiny elephant that grew up to be a flying elephant. So his mom loved him, but all the other bigger elephants didn't. Did you ever see an elephant fly? <laughs> well, I seen a horse fly. Ah, I seen a dragon fly. <laughs> I seen a house fly. <laughs> There's a mouse who believed in Dumbo. And what lesson did the mouse teach Dumbo? You can fly without a feather. How did the feather help him fly? Because he just believed in it. But he only believed that feather would fly. But it was not the feather. You have to believe in yourself. Don't believe in that feather. And then he flies over. And the mouse pretends to be the subconscious in his brain. I... I'm the voice of your subconscious mind, your inspiration. It was not his idea, it was the mouse idea. The little elephant with the big ears, the wild's mightiest midget, Mastodon, Dumbo! So is there anything in the current geopolitical climate that reminds you of Dumbo and his feather? Yes, I think the Greek austerity plan... Wait, what about the Greek austerity plan reminds you of Dumbo's feather? The Greeks think they need the EU, but they could guide themselves out of that academic goldrums. If they just believe in themselves, the feather was just the guide. The feather is EU fiscal policy and enforced austerity, and the Greeks have it within themselves to force themselves out of their economic because doldrums. It's just a guide. Yeah, yeah. But I'll be done seeing about everything when I see an elephant fly. So, why I bring this up is because of the very reason that I'm home. Like I said, enforced homestay because 
my son had a little bit of a fever. How little bit? 100.3. Now, is that a fever? Let's go back to the definition of fever. The reason that humans are said to have a body temperature of 98.6 is because it was originally thought by the French to be 37 degrees, and the conversion from 37 Celsius to Fahrenheit is 98.6. So this means that if you show a 99.4, 99.5, and by the way, at different times of the day, 99.2 or something like that is totally fine. You get a little warmer in the late afternoon, but if you show even that, it's thought of as a fever. But in France, it wouldn't be. In any place they use the metric system, it wouldn't be. It would be 37 point something, and until it gets to 38, which is 100.4, it's not really a fever. So he had 100.3. Just like I've told you about Blue Dung, the healthcare system that my company makes us go through. So they came into our building. And if you do well on three out of five tests, they give you a break. They give you $600 off your premiums. I mean, they really are charging you $600 more if you don't go through those hurdles on in a past episode of The Gist. I talked about everything Blue Dung makes you do. So my triglycerides were 151. Why? I forgot to fast. I had a corn muffin, which is a triglyceride killer. But it was 151, and it needed to be 150. And that one extra triglyceride put me out of the running for my $600 discount. I'm unbelievably upset at blue dung. But if you look at all the thresholds, they always end in zeros, right? Your diastolic and systolic is, it ends in zeros. What are the chances that healthy and unhealthy with all these things in the body end exactly at a zero? In politics, we have a margin of error. But when it comes to health, we have this false notion that 100.3 is a fever or that triglycerides after post corn muffin triglycerides can't be 151. This, my friends, is the reverse of the Dumbo feather. Instead of something to believe in, it's something to erode our beliefs. We think that 100.3 is a fever. We think that 150 triglycerides, post-corn muffin triglycerides, I'm not going to say that 150 triglycerides is fine. Hey, look, I divulged my triglycerides today. You got to give me credit for that. How much credit? 7.3 credit. 7.2 credit is a normal amount of credit, so I'm a little bit in the danger zone. On the show today, we talk about a board game that has a, well, it sort of has a great share of the market, almost a monopoly, you might say. And in the spiel, who's that guy sound like? But now, the secret history of a board game that was said to be invented by a man was really made by a woman. But I'll be done seeing about everything when I see an elephant fly. With the wind. When I see an elephant fly. So Monopoly, the board game Monopoly, it's a lot like middle school. It takes a long time. They tell you you're going to learn something. They tell you it's going to be fun, and none of that's really true, but afterwards you get nostalgic for it. A new book by Mary Pallon is called The Monopolist. It does not have that insight, but what it is, is I'm going to say the authoritative history of Monopoly. Just like baseball researchers try to figure out, is the Doubleday myth true? 
who invented baseball. Monopoly is a really similar tortured history that tells us a lot about the board game in America itself. Mary is here. Hello. Thanks for coming in. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with the official history, the Parker Brothers history that they'd like us to believe. What is it? So the story for a long, long time was that this guy, Charles Darrow, uh, during the Great Depression, he's financially, you know, hit hard times. Parker Brothers has two as a company. He goes into his basement and he innovates and he creates this game. He puts the Atlantic City properties on as an homage to vacationing during better times. He sells the game to Parker Brothers and it becomes this blockbuster. And he and the firm are saved from destruction. But the problem with that isn't so much that he stole the idea from someone else and he kind of stole artwork and he wasn't the one who someone had to teach him to play Monopoly. The problem is... It was more a folklore type thing. It was more a game that, like, trying to patent the game gin. Right. It had a whole life before that, at least 30 years of life. So the game started with this woman, Lizzie McGee. She gets a patent for her game called The Landlord's Game in 1904. And from there, it, it is played by, like, a who's who of left-wing America. It's played at Harvard. It's played at Columbia. It's played at Wharton. And actually, even since, um, I've, run, I've written a few articles about this for the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times in the last few years. And I still hear from people who say, oh, I have a game board from the 20s. So it seems indisputable that this game had a whole life as a folk game the long before Parker game. Brothers. Are we sure that Lizzie invented the landlord game? Well, now I'm really paranoid. I mean, she has the 1904 patent. Which but Darrow is has the patent on Monopoly or Parker Brothers The does. 1935 yeah, patent. Yeah, Correct. So what so, do patents mean is the question. So, you know, I've, I've asked a lot of patent lawyers about it. So 1904 seems like the furthest back that we can zoom. You know, board games in the United States really took off in the 1800s with Milton Bradley and Parker Brothers. So there were other games or other games that were similar-ish. But what's interesting about Landlords and Monopoly is that for a long time leading up to that, people thought, oh, financially themed board games, they're too complicated, they're too wonky, they're too weird, people aren't going to play them. So it did kind of defy some of those conventions. And some of those games, Milton Bradley's original life was really dark. The square for you commit suicide right, right. They were, does pop out at you. Right. The original game of life is really depressing. It's really, really depressing. But then you think... But it reflected the times. It reflected the times. Yeah. And I spent a lot of time thinking about these various time periods that the book took place in, especially with Lizzie McGee's story. Like, what does it mean to be a woman patenting something in 1904? And with Milton Bradley, uh, and Jill Lepore of The New Yorker has a great book called The Mansion of Happiness, which talks about that game and just this idea that death pervaded everyday culture in a way that it doesn't now because people like they just died all the it was so depressing and yeah. so I had kind of I think as much as we get nostalgic about the past I had many moments reporting this book where I thought I'm actually pretty great living in 2015 you know yeah, yeah. like child like just the number of children that died in infancy I think that every member of Lincoln's cabinet had a child that died in infancy I mean it's horrible and even yeah. the Parkers and even, even the, yeah. had this tragedy you know George Parker his two sons die these tragic ways. So I thought those details were important to show not just like who these people were, because I think often we read things, they seem very textbooky and they don't feel like real people, but also like it was a different time in so many ways. So the landlord game, have you played it? Yes. Does it um, play well? Because I'm going to say Monopoly doesn't, but we could get into that. You know what's tricky is I think it's hard to play any kind of Monopoly-ish games in 2015 yeah. because all of us have just been so hardwired yeah. 
to play Monopoly. Yeah. So I think if you were pulling it out of the box in, you know, 1910, different thing than, you know, playing it now when the ratio of landlords games I played to Monopoly games is like, you know, yeah. it's one like a million. listening to maybe a Howling Wolf record or something. It's like, wait, this is the Rolling Stones. It's just like the later thing was mapped onto you. But right, right, yeah. right. So give us some sketches of her story, her beliefs, why she constructed the game based on her single tax theories and then, you know, who she sure. became writing this ad that caused the sensation. <laughs> so she, I had to kind of work backwards because I knew because of the lawsuit involving anti-monopoly that she had to claim this patent. But the, I just want to know who this woman was. And her game clearly has a political message. And there's this great irony, right, that she's this left-wing woman creating a game as a teaching tool to kind of rail against the monopolists of her time. And in fact, it has become today the symbol of corporate greed and something that's the total opposite. So she had a political background. Her father was this guy, James McGee, who wasn't just a um, influential newspaper owner, but he had traveled with Abraham Lincoln during the Lincoln-Douglas debates and was very involved in kind of the earlier days of the Republican Party. So once I found out who her father was, the idea that she would have had a champion, somebody who was very ahead of his time in terms of thinking of his daughter as a, as a writer, as a creator, as a political mind, that clicked in. And so part of that is she was a very outspoken feminist. Yeah. This is before women could vote. So she does this thing where she takes out an ad and puts herself up for auction to the highest bid. And it was very much a protest. It was very tongue-in-cheek, but I think there was also very a, a serious message there where she's disputing how women are treated and how they're paid. And this stunt creates headlines across the country. And, you know, clip searching, that was really fun because you saw how people reacted to her. And some people thought it was very funny. Some people thought it was very strange. She got all these crazy responses. Whether her actual message about income, you know, how women were treated was carried, you know, it was maybe up for debate, but I thought it was pretty gutsy for somebody at yeah. that time to be doing that. So why didn't the Parker brothers know that this was in the public domain? Because it doesn't seem just to have been a local Atlantic city where Darrow was from, where the streets are named. It seems to be a mass phenomenon. There were a lot of games a lot like this. Do you think the Parker brothers did know and just wanted to right. patent something that actually shouldn't have been allowed to be patented? Well, that's where it gets very controversial, right? So they do acquire Lizzie McGee. She renewed her patent in 1924. Um, and she was still alive in you know, the 30s, so they acquire her patent. And there were a lot of other people who also tried selling the game. So this guy, Dan Lehman, sells a game called Finance. Parker Brothers acquires that. Their rival, Milton Bradley, has a game called Easy Money. They get this... I mean, the board agreement. of finance is like 60% <laughs> monopoly. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they all, when you see them all side by side, they look very similar. There was a gentleman named Rudy Copeland in Texas who made a game called Inflation. So people were making these games, and Parker Brothers acquired a lot of them. But one of the key parts of the story that I think is important to remember is that at the time when this was happening, nobody knew they were sitting on Monopoly. Nobody knew they were sitting on a hit, which is very unusual in the toy and game industry, let alone one that we would be talking about all this time later. So when they just kind of went around and acquired these games, you know, I think they were just trying to, you know, cover their bases. Yeah. But it wasn't, I mean, nobody, including, you know, Dan Lehman or any of these early game makers had any idea that it was going to become this massive cash cow. Right. And, and you point out that there are other parallels. There are some ones that totally fizzled. But Parker Brothers, Parker Brothers tried to patent ping pong. Well, they did patent ping pong, right. but they right. didn't own table tennis. Right. And so the idea of games and ownership of ideas is something that comes up over and over again. And there are these wonderful quotes that you can find in just various toy and game journals and, um, you know, early board game stories where people talk about people taking people's ideas and ripping them off all the time. And it, it actually, one of the groups of people I've heard a lot about for the book from are people who work in tech, which yeah. I think is so funny because 
all these tech people are really interested in board games. It yeah. seems a little counterintuitive. A game with an iron and a shoe of, and like, a top hat. Who takes your ideas? I mean, look mm-hmm. at the social network, right? Yeah. I mean, like that's a theme, and so many people in startups say, "Gosh, we spend so much money on litigation and patent attorneys and things." So these themes with you know, ownership ideas and game design are nothing new, but had their origins so long ago. One thing you do, if anyone heard about the myth and then heard the myth was the myth, I don't know if you thought about Darrow that much, but you just think he's whatever scoundrel and opportunist. You flesh him out, you explain his motivations, you made him into a more sympathetic figure than I think anyone else has done before. Darrow did have a story, and I felt that that was important to tell. What Ralph Onspach and some others tied to the case have talked about... Onspach is an inventor of another similar anti-monopoly game called Anti-Monopoly. And what they've taken issue isn't necessarily with what Darrow did, but with what Parker Brothers and its subsequent, you know, owners, because it's traded hands as a company many times have done. But Darrow really was desperate. He really had no job, and he really did have a child who had scarlet fever, which led to mental impairment. And if he didn't do something to make money... this right. kid's life was going to be awful, right? right so, right. you know, as I think about Darrow, I say, would I have done the same thing? Sure, probably. Right. But then for years and years and years, he perpetuated the myth, didn't he? Uh, yes and no. It's hard to say because he um, he did do a lot of interviews where he kind of keeps retelling the story. Um, but something that's interesting is that the Quakers of Atlantic City played a crucial role in this game. And it's a version of that Atlantic City game that Darrow plays. They try to correct the record a few times. They'll see him on TV or hear him on the radio or write into magazines. And one of the things that when when um, they're asked, like, why didn't you sue? Why didn't you push harder? A couple pieces to that. One is Quakers just, they said, we're not litigious people. That's not in our value set. That's not what we're into. But then they make this really good point, which is, well, we didn't know who invented it either. Yeah. You know, we knew that it existed before Darrow because we had taught it to him. But we didn't know. And usually when you have people claiming to take ideas, the original person is the one who really screams about it. But so many of the people who had played the game in the late 20s and 30s, Lizzie McGee was already kind of out of the story at that point. So I think that's one of the reasons why the story kind of continued on. So is Monopoly a good game? Really big game design snobs would say no. But I feel like, and I get asked this a lot, and I feel like it's like criticizing the Model T for not being a good car. It's like, well, it was made a long time ago, and something about it has endured. But we don't drive the Model T today. Right, but Settlers of Catan is fantastic. Like, yes. I love playing. Like, So I'm not like a purist. I think that not, like it's not like it's the only game, and I think all the things that have sprung from it are, are, are fantastic, and it's great, but it's not like the only game. And I think that from competitive, you know, competitive standpoint, there are some design flaws that, you know, something like Scrabble say, you can actually, I think I get why there are Scrabble tournaments and not the same level of Monopoly tournaments because Scrabble you can study up for. It's a math game. There's so much more going on there. Monopoly, there's a lot going on, but it's, it can become very lopsided depending on who you're playing with and, you know. And I would also add that one of the reasons people don't love it is not the actual rules of Monopoly. It's all the stuff that are street rules and let's throw an extra $500 and makes the game last forever. Play Monopoly, buy the rules. (laughs) If you don't buy the property, you put it up for auction, game lasts an hour and a half. Right. Four players, hour and a half. Right. You're the shoe, I'm the battleship. We're right. good. Yeah. Right. Also in my family, there's also this like off the table stuff that goes on, like deals or like bribing. And yeah. it's like those aren't in the rules. Yeah. So of course, once you bring in more house rules and things like that, uh, it gets more complicated. It is weird that uh, <laughs> your family does have the SEC enforcement arm. <laughs> it is odd. I wouldn't think that uh, you know, they would have to so often bring in the National Labor Relations Board, but they do when they play Monopoly. (laughs) (laughs) Gets ugly. 
Mary Pilon is the author of The Monopolists, Obsession, Fury, and the Scandal Behind the World's Favorite Board Game. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor. Actually, a plug for a fellow Panoply podcast. I'd like to talk about Inc., the Inc. podcast. Editor James Ledbetter, staffers John Fine, Christine Ligorio-Chafkin, and Will Yakowitz. They don't blather about business. In fact, they don't blather at all. The podcasts are 20-something minutes in length. They're three topics. They go really quickly. And it's exactly what you'd imagine or would want a discussion among very smart editors who are talking about business stories. So it's not about yields and P.E. ratios. There's no jargon. It's about how our internet passwords are getting smarter. It's about good robots and bad robots. Here, editor Jim Ledbetter is talking about Etsy and how honest they are in their disclosures. Here is a partial list of risks that Etsy management identified. And as I read them, I wondered if they were trying to tell us something. See if you can discern a pattern here. We have a history of losing money. We might not be able to maintain our authenticity. We made some accounting errors, which probably don't matter, but we can't be sure. (laughs) Our software might contain, quote, undetected errors, unquote. We might get distracted by acquisitions. We might not be able to catch fraud in time. And my personal favorite, quote, our business could be adversely affected by natural disasters, public health crises, political crises, or under other unexpected events, unquote. I think the message here is Etsy could be overtaken by robots. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then we'd all be buying tea cozies made by machines. So check out the Inc. podcast part of the Panoply Network. Yes. And now the spiel, voice choices. CNN announced that Kevin Spacey will be narrating, also getting a production credit, on a series called Race for the White House. Now, why did they choose Kevin Spacey, do you think? Did they enjoy his star turn as Hickey on Broadway in The Iceman Cometh? Maybe. What about K-Pax? Everyone loves K-Pax now. Come on. It was for House of Cards. Where he plays this guy, Frank Underwood. The present is like a lone tree in an empty field. He leans whichever way the wind is blowing, and right now Raymond Tusk blows far too strong from the West. You know, this cements my belief that voice casting is the most obvious, the most risk-averse form of casting there is. I mean, think about it. The people who choose the people who read the ads have a thought process that pretty much goes like this. All right, who are we trying to sell to? Well, who played a character like that? Great. John Krasinski, you're now the voice of insurance because you played a guy who would buy insurance on The Office. Just tweet hashtag save 30 and they'll give all this to one of you. Oh, I think I got guac on the money. Or John Hamm, a nice voice, a great voice, certainly a good actor. If you didn't associate him with his character of Don Draper, would he seem classy? BMW is relying on that. BMW is also relying on the fact that I think this is a big reason why they cast him, that the people who make up the ads watch Mad Men, and therefore Don Draper seems like a cool guy who they look up to. So is this John Hamm doing a BMW ad, or Don Draper in the room pitching? The Kodak Carousel. How about over there? What does it mean to have an unlimited mileage warranty on a certified pre-owned Mercedes-Benz? What does it mean to drive as far as you want for up to three years and be covered? It means your odometer 
is there to record the memories. During the Mercedes-Benz certified... Sometimes this is blurred. Yeah, Sam Elliott has played hard-bitten characters, but Sam Elliott's voice is biting hard. Dodge truck. Every truck can tow a boat. Every truck can climb a hill. Every truck can haul a trailer. But not everyone can say they're the fastest growing truck brand in America. By the way, don't think too hard about what those words were saying, because there's a list of attributes that you'd want in a truck, and then there's just the fact that, yes, one truck has to be number one. Is your ad buy our truck because other people buy our truck? Doesn't make too much sense. Doesn't matter. Sam Elliott, great voice. In other forms of media, unconventional casting, depending on the form, is either embraced or tolerated. Certainly on Broadway, you could have a King Lear with a black King Lear and Reagan and Goneril and all the daughters are played by people of different ethnicities and no one bats an eye. It's less, that's less likely to be the case in film or on TV. But with voice casting for ads, I guess they think that you just want to hit the reptilian parts of the brain. But I think that there is a downside to that, just as there is a downside never to allowing a black actor play any Shakespearean role other than Othello. It cements stereotypes, doesn't it? And I know no one wants to be the ad that steps forward and says, yeah, I'll put an obviously Latino voice in this ad that's not even targeting Latinos, that insurance ad. I'll have a Latino actor play that with possibly a vague Latino accent. Like, no one will do that. No one wants to risk that. But I do societally think that it just uh, means that certain kinds of people mean certain kinds of product in a way that isn't true anymore. Now, by the way, I'm back to Kevin Spacey. There is a downside to this. You know, the, the Frank Underwood voice was used in just about the worst political ad I have ever heard. And in fact, the target of this ad tragically committed suicide. Was it because of the attack? that he was made to suffer? No, it's for a lot of reasons. I think people commit suicide because they're suicidal. But you don't get worse than this radio ad that aired in Missouri. Elections have consequences. Tom Schweik, like him, no. Is he a weak candidate for governor? Absolutely, just look at him. He could be easily confused for the deputy sheriff of Mayberry. But more importantly, he can be manipulated. That's why Senator Claire McCaskill and President Obama enlisted my help to meddle in another Republican primary with Schweik as our pawn. You see, Schweik and McCaskill are tied at the hip. Schweik even gave money to McCaskill's campaign. Schweik is an obviously weaker opponent against Democrat Chris Coster. Once Schweik obtains the Republican nomination, we will quickly squash him like the little bug that he is and put our candidate, Chris Coster, in the governor's mansion. But as bad as that ad is, and as cliched the choice of Kevin Spacey to narrate a White House series, and by the way, I doubt he's going to go full Underwood. He's going he's gonna to pull it back. They're similar in a way. I mean, they're, of course, very different. The consequences are very different. One's high-minded, one's in the gutter. But they are pandering, and they don't challenge us to think of things differently. We always talk about images, and the NAACP gives an image award, but image works sonically as well. Uh, 
And that's it for today's show. I'm outside, I'm looking at Central Park West. Snow is melting, light rain, but it's nice. My son's not sick, I gotta say this. Producer Andrea Salenzi once did a movie about an anesthesiologist who did not believe in himself. It was called Numbo. Claire Tennisgetter once did a film about a detective with a long floppy coat that caused no end to his embarrassment, Columbo. Managing producer Joel Meyer once penned a cartoon about a terrible part of town where if they just acted together and believed in themselves, yeah, you know what? It would still be a rat trap. It was called Slumbo. Andy Bowers, our executive producer, is behind the work about a screenwriter who believed in himself, unfortunately also believed a little bit in communism, didn't help the career, that was Trumbo. So I saw Dumbo in Dumbo, the part of Brooklyn, and uh, the crowds were buzzing with magic and hope but mostly disappointment in the possibly racist crows. They didn't really see it as the story of an elephant that flew. They saw it as the cautionary tale about the time when the circus still had elephants. Still, it was delightful to everyone from the ages of, well, 22 to 36 with wispy facial hair. Thank, wait, wait, I almost forgot because yesterday I did forget. Dial a song. They might be giants. Every Monday we have a new one. Except if that Monday turns into a Tuesday because we forgot on Monday. So here, with the new They Might Be Giants song. Excuse me, ma'am, can I ask you a question? Would you say it's good to be alive? Yes, why not? Oh no, literally, would you say it's good to be alive? Would you say my, my language? Oh uh, no, okay, sure, yeah. É bom viver, é bom ter vida. And what is that in English? In Portuguese, that's Portuguese. And what's it in English? The, the, in English, say like, the best thing you want to be alive. It's good to be alive. Very good. All right, it's good to be alive. Found a Portuguese woman. It's good to be alive. They might be giants.
Their economic doldrums. That the guy that says out of the economic gold, gold. Economic doldrums. Economic doldrums. Ready? Economic. Economic. Doldrums. Doldrums. Okay, ready, ready, ready.